Well, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to John. We'll be in John's Gospel this morning, chapter 19. As you turn there, though, uh, this morning, in 1964, Bob Dylan released an album and a song titled, The Times They Are A-Changin'. And the reality is, in 1964 and in every year before that and since that year, times are always changing. And this this morning, as we begin, I want you to think about change and change that occurs in our lives. We have some cliche sayings and some idioms in the English language that we use all the time about change. Uh, some of them are so, uh, so, so well known to us, you can probably c- complete my sentences. Let's throw, throw a few out there this morning and see if you're, see if you're with me. Uh, man, change is... I just realized I can't hear you. Uh, I'm, I'm going to take it that everyone this morning just answered in their vehicles. Change is hard, right? Um, how about this one? Uh, um, change happens, but it happens... I heard a faint little whisper, slowly. Change happens, but it happens slowly. Man, life is so busy, I need a change of... Hey, you guys are catching on. I I heard several that time. Uh, She was thinking about it, but at the last minute, she had a change of heart. Mm, Yeah, change, change. We're experiencing a lot of change right now. I believe we would all be able to say that uh, at this time in our world and in our, our church. And I think these changes that we've experienced in the last month are, are unprecedented in our lifetime. We ask questions like, what will be our new normal? And will things go back to normal? Or will they always be different? How will this affect us moving forward as a, as a church or as a nation? Um, will things ever go back? And some of the change has been good. I think there's some of you that I've even heard from that said, hey, man, I've really benefited from the change of pace, from being able to spend more time at home with my, my family, my wife, my kids, my husband. Some of the changes have certainly not been good. I've talked to some that are extreme extroverts, and this isolation is wearing them out. I mean, the, the, the distance um, emotionally, mentally, spiritually is, is taxing. We've certainly experienced a lot of change with this rapid pace, but this Easter morning, I want you to think about change and the change that happens because of the resurrection. The resurrection brought profound changes in our faith and in our purpose and in our position before God. In fact, I want to argue this morning that the resurrection stands alone as the most incredible event in history, the hinge around which everything else revolves. You think about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. There in Corinth, uh, some were saying and even teaching that, that there was no resurrection. And Paul writes to them in 1 Corinthians, and he says, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is worthless, and you're still in your sins. That's how vital the resurrection is. If the resurrection didn't happen, if Jesus is not alive, then we're still in our sin, and everything we believe about God, everything we believe about salvation, everything we believe about eternity in heaven is empty. It's meaningless. So if you have your Bibles open to John chapter 19, I want to show you some changes this morning that happen in the text. In John 19 and 20, as our Savior is resurrected, some changes that we see in the text. Verses 38 and 39 are the first hint that we have some things about to change. John, in his, in his writing here, gives us some detail, a very small detail, about two men, the two men that went and, and took Jesus' body to bury it. And even in those passing comments, we see a change in their attitude. Read with me uh, John 19, starting in verse 38. It says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. 
And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and he took the body away. Nicodemus also, who had earlier come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Did you catch that? Joseph, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus, the text says, is now publicly identifying himself with Jesus. Nicodemus, who secretly came to Jesus under the cover of darkness because he didn't want to be seen in chapter 3 of John, now comes and fully identifies himself with Jesus, and he brings these spices with him. You have to put yourself in their shoes. There's a danger in identifying with a guy who's just been executed for sedition and blasphemy, right? Even if uh, the, the closest 12 followers of Jesus scatter like mice, these two guys come forward, Joseph and Nicodemus, and even if they're not putting their, their physical lives in danger, their reputations were certainly in danger. You, you don't come back from something like this, from making a public identification with, with Jesus like they're doing here. So what change is taking place here? What, what, it's a boldness. There's a boldness that they have to uh, identify with and submit their lives to this one who's just been killed. Jesus says back in John chapter 12, unless a grain of, of wheat falls in the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. Like the flowers that are budding and blooming around us right now in this springtime, these two men, Joseph and Nicodemus, are the first fruits of a great harvest that are going to come after Jesus' death. These men are also a signal for us that some other changes are about to come. As you read through John 19, this is a shift, and these guys are showing us there's change coming, and the greatest change of all is just around the corner. Let's continue reading. Notice the change that takes place in the next three verses. As I read, think about the way that Jesus' body, his physical body, is being handled and treated in the verses I'm about to read in contrast with everything we read about Jesus' body in the crucifixion. So read with me. Continue reading with me in verse 40. And they took the body of Jesus, they bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial practice of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, in the new garden, a tomb in which no one had been laid. And so because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. The, the body that had been mutilated by scourging and by crucifixion a few verses earlier is now being handled delicately with care and with concern. Jesus laid down his, his life, and when he died, the persecution, the affliction, the agony are over. Why? Because he said it's finished. It's finished. The work of the cross was done. He paid our sin debt. He'd taken the wrath of God for us as sinners. And when he finally drank the full cup of God's wrath that was ours, he says it's finished and the suffering is complete. And now his body is physically bought. His physical body is treated differently. It's cared for in the right and appropriate ways, delicately and with concern. Well, the changes keep coming. Let's continue reading. See the change that takes place in the tomb as we continue in John chapter 20, verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. And she saw that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. And so she ran and went to, to Simon Peter and to the other disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the body of the Lord uh, out of the tomb, we, and we do not know where they've laid him. Now, this other disciple that it's talking about here is uh, the one whom Jesus loved is John. And this is John's way. He's writing, remember, John's writing. It's John's way of talking about himself in the third person. And you have to love the guy's humility, right? Like, you know, Jesus loves all of you. 
but I'm his favorite. He loves me a little bit more. I'm the disciple that Jesus loved, right? That's the way he's talking about himself there. And so anytime you see that, you'll see it more in the text. He says the other disciple, that's him. He's talking about himself. You see what Mary does. She assumes that the body of Jesus has been stolen, that grave robbers or, or someone, the, the garden uh, keeper, has taken the body. And she doesn't know what, what, what's been done with it. She doesn't even consider the possibility of resurrection. And she goes back and, and tells the disciples. So verse 3. So Peter went out with the other disciple, it's John, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, just pause right there. You have to love this guy, John, right? This is what you call a humble brag, right? This is him saying, yeah, I'm Jesus's favorite, and I always told you other boys that I could beat Peter, the motor mouth, in a foot race, and now I have beat him in a foot race, and I've preserved it for all time in the Bible that I beat him to the tomb, right? Humble brag, verse five. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there. He didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb and he saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus's head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded in place by itself. And the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as, they, for as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. There's a change that takes place here in the text as well, a change in the tomb that takes place. But there's also a change in John's heart and understanding that takes place. You see in verse 8, it says John saw and believed. Well, what did he believe? That Jesus' body had been stolen? No. He believed the resurrection. John is, is the first person in all of the world to believe that Christ is alive again, that he's risen from the dead. Well, why did John believe? What did he see that made him believe? Well, let me show you. The word of God is incredible. Look at this. In four verses, the four verses that we just read, the Greek, the original language that this is written in, uses three different words for see or for vision, sight, saw. And this is intentional, right? Look at, look at the text again. If you've got your Bible still open with me, verse 5. Tells us that John stopped short. John stopped short of the garden tomb. He didn't go in. He saw, the text says, the grave cloths. And the Greek word there is blepo. It, it's more like a, a passing glance. Like, oh, I kind of caught my eye. Which makes sense, right? If you think about the text and everything that's happened in John 19, John was the, the, the only disciple to witness the gory mutilation of Jesus' body. He saw the, the blood and the way that Jesus was disfigured because of the beating that he had taken. And so he catches a glimpse, he blepo, he just sees it, passing glance, those grave cloths. And you can imagine it sent chills down his spine as all of those memories and that sight he couldn't get from his, his brain. It was forever lodged there in his mind. And so he stops short, doesn't go in. Then verse 6 says, Peter came, brushes John aside and goes on into the tomb. And he also saw the grave cloths. The Greek there, a different word for saw. In the English, we just have saw, 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 right? But here the Greek word is different. It's theoreo. It's what we get the English word theater from. It's a more intentional look. It's a long and careful look like you would at a theater. You, you think on it. You look at it and you observe it. You study it. You try to figure out what in the world's going on here. The cloths were there just like they'd have been if Jesus was there, except there was no Jesus. He's observing. And he, but then in verse 8, John also goes in, he composes himself, and he enters in, and he saw and believed. That's a third Greek word for saw there in the, in the, in the text, and it's actually one word, it's orao. And the idea there is that he saw with understanding. 
He saw and immediately it was obvious to him what is going on here. He understood in his heart. In other words, John saw and believed a miracle had taken place. He says, Peter, don't you see it? Don't you see it? They've not done anything with the body. It's gone because he's alive. He's risen. Christ is alive. John saw what every Christian since has seen. Now, we don't see with physical eyes what John saw, but every one of us as believers in Christ has seen an empty tomb. Spiritually speaking, we've seen the cross as something that was done on our behalf, him taking our sin to the cross, and we see the empty tomb as evidence that that sacrifice was accepted by God the Father. Has that occurred for you this morning? A moment in your life where there's been this transition where life had no meaning, had no purpose, was hopeless, and then you saw the cross and you saw your sin hanging there and you saw the empty tomb and the Son of God resurrected to life and that sight becomes the greatest news you've ever heard or seen in your life. If not, friends, I urge you to come and see today the tomb is empty. The tomb is empty because your salvation is complete. There's another change that takes place in John chapter 20. If you continue in the text, it's a change in Mary's emotions. It says this in verse 11, but Mary stood outside the tomb and she wept. And she stooped and looked into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting there where the, where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've laid him. And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Woman, or whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, you, if you've carried him away, just tell me where you've laid him and I'll, I'll take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he said these things to her. Now John, presumably uh, Peter and, and John left believing, right? He saw and believed. He can, tells Peter of that, and they leave, and they, they, they have not seen Jesus alive yet, but they believe, or at least John does. Mary Magdalene, though, is the first to see Jesus alive. She's the first to have that joy of laying her physical eyes on the resurrected Christ. And so we're not sure here, but if you put these details together, what it looks like happens is that uh, Peter and John are, 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 are excited about what's happened. They go back home, the text says, uh, and, and on their way, for whatever reason, um, they either don't see, they overlook Mary, or they go home a different way, and she comes back, and they miss each other. So they're not able to explain what's happened. They're not able to, to have a conversation with Mary. Either way, she gets there, and she's heartbroken. She's standing outside the tomb. She's alone. She's uninformed, and she's weeping. In the text, in the Greek, it actually says she's, she's wailing. She's sobbing. It's uncontrollable mourning that's taking place in, in, in Mary right at that moment. And this is understandable, right? We don't have time to unpack this, but if you remember, Mary Magdalene had seven demons that Jesus rescued her from. She's uh, sinned very much, and, and Jesus forgave her. She loved Jesus with everything she had. She was shattered by this. This was heartbreaking to her. Not only that he was dead, but that someone's taken his body, and they're going to uh, continue to make sport out of him or, or to continue to humiliate him by, by doing something with his body. She's, she's shattered here. And in her wailing, in her uncontrollable sobbing, she's totally unprepared for what happens next. 
The text says she has this exchange with these angels and they question her weeping. And then she sees Jesus and she talks to him and she doesn't know it's Jesus. And then in verse 16, look what happens in verse 16. Jesus says to her, Mary, Mary. John teaches in John chapter 10, Jesus is showing us in John chapter 10 that he's the good shepherd. And Jesus is teaching and he says that he calls his sheep by name and they respond to him. And in verse 16, that's exactly what's happening. He calls her name Mary. That's all he had to say. That's all he said to her was her name, and she knew, that's my Lord. That's King Jesus. That's the one I've followed. That's the one who's rescued me from my sin and from these demons. That's him. Can I ask you this morning if you've heard him call your name? Have you heard him call your name? Do you know his voice? Do you have a relationship with him such that when he calls your name, that's my Jesus. That's the one who died for me. That's the one who I've given my life to. That's my good shepherd. Well, those aren't the only changes we see in the text. As I've walked through the text this morning, you you see five changes that I've pointed out to you already. Joseph and Nicodemus go from undercover disciples to open followers of Jesus, right? That's change number one. Number two, you see a a change in the way that Jesus' body is handled from affliction to affection and adoration. There's a third change, the change in the tomb from occupied to vacant. There's a change in John as he sees and believes in the resurrection. And there's a change in Mary from weeping to worshiping. But here's the thing. All of those changes are small changes. Now, we don't have a lot of these in Franklin County, but uh, in other parts of the world, they have a lot of earthquakes. And I've been told, never been through one, but I've been told that with an earthquake, you have the event and then you have all of these aftershocks. You have all these small tremors that follow the big earthquake, the big event. Well, these five changes that we've observed this morning in the text are the aftershocks. The earth-shaking reality this morning and in the text is that Jesus is alive. Jesus raised. Jesus is alive. He's resurrected from the tomb. And when he rises from the dead, everything is changed and nothing can be the same. And let me give you two takeaways as we wrap up this morning. I know some of you that got here early have been here already for a while. Two takeaways this morning that the resurrection means for us. That's the change. That's the change that happens in the text. And that's the change that happens that, that, that sets the course of all of human history. So let me give you two takeaways this morning that that change means for us. Number one, the resurrection means that death is defeated. The resurrection means that death is defeated. Think about this. Birth and death are common human experiences that every one of us, every person alive, regardless of race, ethnicity, language, gender, every one of us will endure at some point, birth and death. God actually describes our life in in Psalm chapter 39 as a vapor. In other words, your life lasts no longer than the steam from your morning shower. That's how quick life is. And when Mary goes to the tomb that morning, that's her mindset. She's looking for a corpse. She's looking for a body. She's looking for a a, a dead person. And after finding the body, though, she goes and reports to the disciples uh, that the body's missing. But in verse 18, she sees and talks with Jesus. And what does she say? She doesn't say, I found his body. She says, I found, I've seen the Lord. (laughs) Why? Because Jesus has conquered death. Jesus has conquered death. Uh, another pastor said this, and I love the way he puts it. He says that Jesus stared into death's cold, cruel eyes, and with infinite power he defeated death, rendering death impotent. Prior to the resurrection of Jesus, every person walked this earth with an executioner's blade above his neck, never sure when death would strike. But Jesus disarmed death. 
He showed us what awaits those who are his once they pass from this life. If you think about it, friends, the fear of death causes us to try to minimize its effects, the effects that we see in this world, one of them being aging. The fact that our bodies age and wear out is, is showing us that death is coming. Every day, we're closer to the grave. And so we're told to, to be younger, to look younger, to eat healthier, to color our hair, to remove wrinkles, because we don't want to face death. All of these measures are silly if you think about it. It's sort of the, the, the thinking, if you follow logic, is like, if we ignore death, then maybe death will ignore us. That's not true. And fear of death shackles our hopes and dreams to this earth, to transient things that are passing away. But because Jesus has conquered death, we can live for the next life, an eternal life, not this temporary one. We are participants in Jesus' resurrection, and, 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 and our priorities should reflect that truth. And this is really, if you want to get practical and get some application here from the resurrection of Jesus, this is where materialism and Christianity can't coexist. There's a tension there that can't be resolved, right? Materialism, what I mean when I say that, is that we're pursuing happiness by accumulating stuff in this life. And Christianity is the opposite. It says that we're giving up stuff in this life to accumulate, to pursue happiness in Jesus. And those two can't be reconciled. Materialism happens when the threat of death causes us to live for here and now. The young kids these days have a, a saying, YOLO, you only live once, and so let's get what we can get now. And Christianity says, no, in Christ we live forever. So store up what you can have there. And as Christians, we realize death has no hold on us. Paul himself said to live is Christ, to die is gain. And when we get that truth, when we live in that truth, it causes us to see death not as something we fear and cower from, but something we embrace saying, come, I'm going to see Jesus. We live with open hands because we're guaranteed another life. That's what we see in the empty tomb, that Jesus has defeated death, not only for himself, but for any of those that would come and give their lives to him. There's a second thing we see in the, in the resurrection, another implication of the resurrection, that incredible change that happened on Easter morning. And this is it, that the resurrection means that our relationship status has changed. 108 times in the Gospel of John, Jesus refers to God as Father. 108 times. Of those times, 27 he says, my Father. 71 times he says, the Father. There's one time in the Gospel of John where Jesus refers to God as the disciple's Father. You know where that's at? It's right here. This is the one time, verse 17, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. This is the only time in John's Gospel where Jesus calls the disciples his brothers. What is it teaching us? It's intentional. It's teaching us. It's showing us that when Jesus rises from the dead, the position of his disciples is radically altered. No longer cut off from God, no longer enemies of God, but because of the resurrection, though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we are now full family members, brothers with Christ, and have God as Father. That's what the sacrifice of Jesus does. The sacrifice of Jesus for our sins, and don't separate it from this, the divine acceptance of that sacrifice of Jesus by the resurrection that we see in the resurrection, it ushers us into a new family where we have God as Father and Christ as brother. And only when God does a work in our hearts, granting us faith, do we become his children. That's what we see in John chapter 1. Because of faith that he gives us, we become his children. And from our perspective, right, it's so easy for us to, from our perspective, say, all that's necessary to become a child of God is to believe upon Christ, to become a part of God's family. But that's, all, that's not all that was needed. 
Jesus had to do something, and that's what we see here. He had to pay our sin debt so that we could be declared righteous, and his sacrifice had to be accepted by the Father, which is what we see in the resurrection. It had been. That's why when he, ri- when he rises from the dead, his first words to the disciples through the lips of Mary is that by faith, they're now a part of God's family eternally, sons of God, brother of Christ, brother of Jesus. So as we wrap up this morning, let me give you three blessings, three promises that were given as a result of this new position, new place in the family of God as brothers and sisters here and, as, and having God as father. Let me give you three blessings we get from that truth. Number one, we have the promise of an inheritance. The immeasurable riches of God are forever yours in Christ. You are a co-heir with Christ, the scripture says. That promise, listen, and think about what we're going through now as a world. That promise helps us to move beyond any temptation that this world offers us. That that promise that we are co-heirs with Christ helps me to say that if everything is taken away, every freedom is taken away, every earthly possession I have is taken away, I have everything in Christ. That's the reality of being a son of God. And if I die penniless, if that's what God wills, and I die penniless, I can know that eternal riches, eternal riches await me in glory. Second promise that we have because of this new position in Christ is the promise of unending love, right? Like no matter, I don't know who all is in the parking lot this morning, I just see vehicles. No matter who your earthly father was or what kind of father you had, you now have a perfect heavenly father in Christ. And his love will not come and go as his emotions or his sobriety changes. His love is sure. His love will not be affected by your performance. That's the kind of love you have in Christ. It's a love that's great enough to discipline you when you sin. It's a love that's great enough to embrace you when you are broken. It's a love that's great enough to reward you at his good pleasure. That's the love you have in Christ. Third promise that we have because of this place in God's family is the promise of acceptance. In a short time after the events here that we read this morning in 19 and 20, Jesus is going to ascend. And we see that in the text as well. He's going to ascend and go and be seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And that assures us, that place that Jesus is occupying assures us that we'll be accepted before the Father. You were not accepted because of what you did for God. Instead, you were accepted because of what Jesus accomplished And so his place, seated at the right hand of the Father, says he has finished it, it is done, and because he's seated, the work is done, and you are now fully accepted if you are a child of God. And as long as he's there, which is for eternity, you can trust your place is there as well. If he accepted Jesus, and he did, then he will accept you, and he has, if you are in Christ. So as we close this morning and we go back to our homes and whatever normal looks like over the next few weeks, as we go and live lives that we may not get to see each other for a while, as things are changing daily, it seems like, we must, listen, church family, we must believe in the empty tomb. We must believe if we have any hope, if we have any joy, any security, any peace in this life or the next, it's from this truth that the tomb is empty and the throne is occupied today, right now. That Jesus was raised and he's vindicated by the Father, that he secured our salvation and that he's brought us into the family of God because he took your sins to the cross and then he rose in three days showing that it was paid in full. That's the reality of the gospel. And so if you're here this morning, we don't have a normal invitation where you would walk an aisle and pray with a pastor or something like that. But the invitation is not closed. 
The invitation is open. As long as there's breath in your lungs and a heartbeat in your chest, the invitation is this. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that, that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved, Romans 10, 9. Will you give your life to him today? The resurrection is good news because there's forgiveness for us in Christ. The empty tomb shows us that death is defeated and eternal life is ours in Christ. Call on him today. Give your life to the king, the serpent crusher, the one who stared death in the face and rose to tell the story.